noise, make 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 noise. Hello, how are you? Hey, what's going on? How are you? Oh, oh, this is a good, this is a good day. It's two for two. Send me the ball. Smell Hill. Come on. How, how much better can you get? How are you feeling? I'm feeling good, you know, just uh, I'm out here in L.A. just uh, scratching and surviving like everybody else. Wait, hold on now, now. I see what you're doing with that Emmy back there. Are you, <laughs> you, uh, but I got the Grammy back there. What I'm saying? I, that's, I'm that's, a, that's a big deal, you know what I'm saying, that you got a Grammy. <laughs> just let me fall back. I can't bust your chops about that because I got something back there. First, first things first, I want to give you a flower. You are a hero to me, legitimately, legitimately. Here's why, because you had a very big platform, huge. And in the face of get down or lay down with the machine, you didn't, you didn't do that. You said, listen, fuck y'all. I'm not getting down and I'm not laying down. So either one, what y'all want to do? And as a man who worked for Hot 97 at the time, which was the biggest black urban media in existence at the time, I understand what that can be like, the pressure of somebody saying, I'm going to lose my job. This is a huge platform. I'm in front of a bunch of people. What about the ancillary money? What about this? For you to say, no, you know, you know something is bigger than that. To me, to me, you're a hero. Well, and, that and, is. And I, I just want to say that to you. That's very kind and far too generous for you to say, because, um, you know, I guess it's just natural when I think about heroes. I don't necessarily think of myself. You know, I think about so many people that we as black people look up to whose histories we know, some of which we should know more about. You know, I think about Ida B. Wells and Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman and Fannie Lou Hamer. That's who I'm thinking about. Um, right, right, right. Because- now, hold on now. Now, you're not going to get your name on a 20, or your face on a $20 bill. No. But you're all a hero now. Well, well, thank you. Um, I appreciate that. And I will just accept and receive these flowers, something I'm learning to get better at. So so thank you, man. I appreciate that. Got that. So let's start here. Where are you from? For people I'm, who know. I'm originally from Detroit, uh, the 313. And um, as I tell people, I'm uh, from the real hood, not the rap hood. So I'm from Detroit, Detroit, not suburban Detroit, not two hours away, not an hour away. I'm from Detroit. <laughs> Wait, hold on. Is, is this like Easter? Is this, this like Easter? Nah, dude, I'm not from Detroit, <laughs> okay? I'm from Easton. I'm a West Listen, I, listen I used to be in Easton. Easton was nothing to play with when I was there. I was like, oh, damn. yeah, I mean, there's definitely parts that are right outside Detroit or Stone's Throw that are, like, real. You know, like, Highland yeah. Park is, is right in the center, not the center of Detroit, but it's right embedded in Detroit, but it's just called Highland Park, and they have their own government and everything, but Highland Park is, is real, you know? Um, but, no, I'm, I'm a West Sider. I went to Muffer High School. Uh, graduated from Michigan State. So, yeah, now I'm, I'm a for real Detroiter. <laughs> Listen, I used to go to Detroit in the 90s. And there was a place called Bella. And I'm sure oh, you know about Bella. Know it well. <laughs> yes. Know it well. Um, I remember going to Bella and I was the only one without a gun. And they were <laughs> like, yo, listen, if you want to be out here with us, this is how this is working. You'd rather be caught with the gun than without it. And, and they were like, yo, you don't understand how to de-work. I said, and I, and sooner, sooner or later, I wound up understand how to de-work, and I understood that the D is very real. Um, what made you get into sports? You're a girl. 
What brings you to that road? So I just never remember a time where I didn't love sports. I was like the neighborhood tomboy. Um, I love to to play sports, you know, was out there playing everything, you know, uh, from freeze tag to football, like everything. And so I always had a natural affinity for it. I was a decent athlete at one time. And I also love to watch sports. You know, baseball was actually my first love growing up. And that soon br- uh, uh, branched into college football and the NFL and um, all other sports. And the other thing I loved to do was was to read and write. Like I was a voracious reader. Uh, I love to write. And in high school, I took a high school journalism class. And after that, I was sold that I wanted to be a sports writer. And so that's what I've spent my life doing is writing and talking about sports. Um, I was a sports writer in newspapers for like a good decade before I got to ESPN. And then once Mm -hmm. I got to ESPN, they hired me as a writer. They did not hire me to be on TV. But the television thing just kind of evolved. And by the time I left, I had a a pretty decent career um, in, in sports commentating, you know, being an analyst and and that kind of thing. And so, um, so yeah, so it, it was, it's the only thing I've ever loved. It's the only thing I know how to do. I'm terrible at math. So <laughs> all I can do is give you right. these awful sports takes and try to make sense of the world. <laughs> right, gotcha. Before I get into the ESPN thing, what brought you, I, I mean, no, the question I want to ask was somebody called my phone. I cannot talk to you. I'm on the phone with Jamel Hill, sir. <laughs> uh, 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 leave me alone. Um, any position, any sport, if you had the opportunity, any position, any sport, what would you do? Ooh, that's a great question. No one has ever asked me this. So I'm very excited about answering this. So even oh, like I played I, when I was in high school, I played fast pitch softball. I was a shortstop. I always had a strong arm and I never, I never gave basketball the attention I should have. I would play recreationally with my friends and even when I was an adult, but I specifically would love to be a point guard. And even more specifically, I love to have a dynamite left hand because my left hand is shitty. I guess I shouldn't, <laughs> shouldn't tell you. Case. No, no, my my, my, my no, playing days are over with. Right so, yeah, yeah I'm, a, I'm a strong righty, but I wish I'd have been working on that left hand layup, you know, because I played right. basketball a little bit in junior high, but I should have been working on the left or going left. And because I was a little taller then as a girl, they put me at power forward, which it was like, nah, I wanted to handle, <laughs> handle the ball and, right. and set things up. You know, that's what you do as a shortstop. You're like the point guard of the infield mm-hmm. to some degree. So um, at any rate, uh, yeah, I, I really wish I would have played basketball and, and done it in a, in a serious, more serious way. If you, if you could be one sports superstar for 48 hours, jump in the skin, one sports superstar for 48 hours live their life to understand who they really are, who would you pick? Hard for me not to go with Serena Williams. Um, first, I just, she has like an eight pack. I just want a one pack. I just want one of those apps, right? That's it. But, um, you know, for her to be as dynamic as she is, given the age that she is, I mean, she completely reshaped and made us reimagine. Um, you know, how long a woman was supposed to take, uh, not just play tennis, but be great at it, be the best at it, the best of all time. I think she's the best female tennis player of all time. And even if you want to throw in men, I mean, she's, she's up there. She's in the top five, top 10 worst, you know what I'm saying? And so, I mean, she's one of the best athletes ever, man or woman. So I love to be her um, just because um, I think she's so dynamite and so strong and, 
her and her sister have single-handedly carried this sport for 20 years, single-handedly. Mm-hmm. You know, the we, she's the reason we care about women's tennis, American women's tennis, I should say, or women's tennis in general. So I, I'd probably say her. I just think she's dynamite, graceful, powerful, competitive. I mean, when you talk about the best killer instincts that you've seen in sports, you have Jordan, you have Kobe. I think Serena is right in that mix. Listen, I was in Newark Airport, and I was on a, a Virgin Airlines flight with Serena Williams. I don't know Serena Williams from a can of paint. So we both go in the business lounge, and I, they said, oh, Serena Williams in the airport? I said, hey, how you doing, Serena Williams? Fat Man Scoop. So when people don't know me, I just say, hey, Serena, how you doing? My name is Fat Man Scoop. Fat Man Scoop, Crooklyn Clan. And, and, and the woman's face, she looked like she would whip out my fucking throat and, 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 <laughs> and just give it back to me. And mm. she said, hey, Scoop, how you doing? But the, that first initial look was like a look of, like you said, Jordan, a killer, a killer. <laughs> so, but then she was like, she was like, she's like, high school, how you doing? But, but I could tell she was a fierce competitor, and physically, that woman is like Adonis, man. Like she, I understand exactly what you say. I, she did for twenty years make us care about what women's tennis. I don't think that anybody would have cared about it. And, and like you said, I think she was extremely competitive, and she ran the game. All right. So, with, with that being said. How was your, what was your road to ESPN? Was it long? Was it quick? Was it long road, quick road, got there, took time? Um, You know, here's the thing that people should understand. I never wanted to work for ESPN. Like that was never on my vision board. The job that I, that was on my vision board, the job I wanted is I wanted to write for Sports Illustrated. Because again, I am a writer. That is what mm-hmm. I, you know, that was the the foundation of what I did. And so before I even got to ESPN, I was a general assignment sports reporter in, in Raleigh, North Carolina for the News and Observer in Raleigh. Then I spent six years at the Detroit Free Press covering uh, college football and college basketball. I spent another two years in Orlando as a sports columnist for the Orlando Sentinel. And um, yeah, so I wanted to write for Sports Illustrated and write long form stories and cover pieces and that kind of thing. I, I had no desire whatsoever to ever be on television. And the ESPN thing just kind of happened. Um, a guy named Skip Bayless that I know you guys are all familiar with, he was still writing columns for ESPN.com. And what was happening was that he was, uh, they were starting a show called Cold Pizza. And he had done, he was doing TV now full time. And so he was giving up his column on ESPN.com and that left a spot mm-hmm. open and so um, it just so happened that my my old manager was really good friends with a, a black executive named Keith Cleanscales, who used to run Savoy. You know, you know Keith probably, yeah. Right, right. If vibe for a minute, vibe for a minute, yeah. Ran a lot of stuff. Yep, he did. And so Keith was a a high ranking executive at ESPN, and he was running ESPN the magazine, and he wanted, mm-hmm. yeah. So um, he um, he and I met. You know, we we hit it off. He was like, you should come to Bristol for an interview. I went to Bristol, did pretty good. And then they hired me. So it was completely accidental. And once I got there, you know, the job was to be a columnist for ESPN.com. But, um, you know, what happens is, you know, you, you start to generate a little buzz with your columns and then some TV producer gets a, a bright idea to put you on TV. And because I didn't take it seriously, it actually worked for me. So I wasn't all caught up into 
looking a certain way or being a certain way on TV. Yeah, exactly. I wasn't even caught up in all that. You know, I was just like, I'm going to just be me. And mm-hmm. me is what was apparently good enough. And so I look up two years in the ESPN and half my job is television. I'm doing sports reporters and around the horn and Jim Rome is burning and, you know, hits on sports center and all this stuff. And so it just kind of escalated, you know, from there. So it took me, I mean, I was a, a, a newspaper reporter for about nine years before I got to ESPN. And I spent 12 years at ESPN. It's the longest job I've ever had. It's the best job I've ever had. And, um, you know, when it was time to leave in uh, 2018, for me, it just, it felt like time. There was nothing else I needed or wanted to do there. You know, and I had two shows there. It was like, yeah, I'm good. You know, we, we, our chapters closed. Mm-hmm. When, 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 what was the feeling like? I want to know what the two feelings were like. What was the feeling the day that you got your ESPN uh, credentials or whatever pass to get in the building? <laughs> what did that feel like walking past that ESPN you know, logo? And then what did you feel like the last day you walked out of ESPN? Because those are two different those are two different dynamics. Yeah, very different. I, I'll have to say, I think because I wasn't in awe of ESPN when I went there. I didn't have that moment when I first got the badge. Like, oh, oh I'm at okay, so you, you didn't. Now, you didn't have the who. No, but I'm gonna tell. But I'm gonna tell you when I had it though. When I had that moment is the day, the first day um, I, I anchored Sports Center, our premiere show on sport. When we, when Mike and I, uh, Michael Smith and I, anchored the six o'clock Sports Center. When we got that job, and mm-hmm. we're on that set, and those are the same seats that Stuart Scott and Rich Eisen and Dan Patrick and Keith Oberman sat in, that's when it was like, holy shit, this is a big deal. I'm anchoring the six o'clock sports center. So I had more of the moment kind of then um, because for the first probably six or seven years that um, I was in at ESPN, I didn't, I wasn't living in Connecticut because I was still able to live in Orlando where I had been living since I had been a columnist there. And I was just going back and forth and I didn't have to move to Bristol until I started doing his and hers or numbers never lie, which then became his and hers. And so I, I, spent, I, yeah, I love I, the dynamic between, I, don't, I love the dynamic dynamic between you and Mike. I yeah. always loved that. Yeah. I loved it. I, I like, I like Mike, I'm, you know, he's doing his whole light skin excellence thing. I understand. <laughs> but, you know, I love him with him. No, no, I love the man. The glasses and the light skin, like, I got it. I'm with you, Mike. Um, yeah. So you got the, you got it with with that. Bristol and people, if you don't know what Bristol, Connecticut is, it is the in the middle of fucking nowhere. It yep. is in the middle of fucking nowhere. To where the fuck am I? To where the <laughs> hell is this? You, you know, was was that a big thing to have to move up there and do that because? I mean, they haven't moved their headquarters. They're like, I don't care. We're going to stay up here. We started here. That's where we're going to be. So um, I'm glad you made that. You gave people that intel about Bristol. It's like, I mean, man, you're exactly right. It is in the middle of nowhere in Connecticut. You're like two and a half hours from New York, about two hours from Boston. And it's just kind of, you know, it's, it's, we were, I refer to it as doing a bid. I did a four and a half year bid at Bristol. Okay. Some days about they did longer, you know, but it wasn't as big of a hardship for me because I had been going back and forth to Bristol for years. So I knew what to expect. I knew that's mm-hmm. where your social life basically comes to a halt and that anything you do, you're doing it out of town. Like it's not happening in Bristol. And so um, it wasn't a big adjustment for me. And besides, look, 
this is the thing about when you are a sports journalist or you're a journalist, period. You go where the work is. Every This is the first time I'm living in Los Angeles now. This is the first time I've ever picked the city I wanted to live in. You know, I lived in Raleigh. I lived in Lansing, Michigan. I lived in Orlando. Um, and even when I was in college and interned in different places, I lived in Lima, Ohio for three months. I lived in Philly. I lived in like a bunch of places, Cleveland, because that's what you do. You go where the work is. So this is a very transient profession. So spending time in Bristol, while certainly not my first or a hundredth choice, it was what re was required if I wanted to do television every day and have that kind of platform. Right. Now, uh, two questions before I move forward. Bristol is, again, like I said, it's in the, the intersection of where the fuck is this in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> do you think they do that for people to be able to be focused because there's nothing there? And number two was, what was it like as a person of color? On top of that, a female being in that Disney system, that really, really corporate, super, you know, you know, <laughs> well, um, to answer uh, answer your first question is that like, you know, I mean, the thing is, is it, it, Bristol itself is just, it's not, it's not a lot of black people. There are pockets of black people. I lived in downtown Hartford where that was, Hartford had way more black people, right? So I wanted to at least be able to see some black people at some point. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, downtown Hartford. I lived in downtown Hartford. That wasn't bad. Um, but, you know, you know that a lot of when you do socialize, if you're in Bristol, you're going to be doing a lot of socializing with uh, a lot of your colleagues or whatever. It's a mm -hmm. lot of black people. You know, it, it was a group groups of black people that I definitely hung out with. I mean, I don't know how to made it if it wasn't for like L. Duncan and Michael Eves, Carrie Champion, like I don't. Michael Smith. I mean, I don't know how if I'd have made it. You know, right. a lot of a lot of really good black people that work there, and so, um, you know, we had our own little community of folks, and so we would get together and hang out and and all that kind of thing. Um, but just being at being at there's being in corporate America, and then there's being at Disney. That's like a different level, right? Okay, so and, so so walk that walk me through that because. When I think of Disney, I think of Mickey Mouse. I think of, listen, sir, we're going to keep this clean. Uh, the, even the way that I halfway talk during an interview, I'm never getting on Disney. I can forget that. I can throw that <laughs> over my shoulder. So tell me about that. So Disney, the, the, the reason Disney has become so successful is like they try, to, they try to be everything to everybody. And there's a particular audience that they want to cater to just in the sense of like, you know, they're, they have a brand as Disney. Disney is what raises your kids, you know what I'm saying? And so they have a very, um, you know, kind of a, a very tight corporate structure. But ESPN is that way too. You know, ESPN, like you asked why Bristol? The reason ESPN is in Bristol is because of cheap land, the tax breaks, and, sa and satellite triangulation. That's it. Like, it's not the guy who founded, the, the founder, original founders of ESPN, they were from Hartford. So that is why they put it in Bristol. Cheap land, like ESPN has 18 buildings. I mean, the shit is like, it's a college campus. Like it's huge. It's campus. Yeah, it's huge. I mean, and granted they have another headquarters in Los Angeles, but like, you know, Bristol is where the mothership is. And um, I don't even think it was a matter of them trying to keep people focused. I think again, cheap, uh, cheap land. It was where it was, cheap land, great tax benefits, you know, why not, right? And so you knew that if you 
wanted to be at a destination job like ESPN, the price of you doing that is that you had to spend time in Bristol. But as far as Disney is concerned, um, I mean, it's a it's a great company. The Disney benefits, dude, they just so ridiculous. Like, it's just they're awesome. But there is an expectation. And um, I remember when I first started at ESPN, an ESPN executive told me that from the moment I leave the house, I I represent ESPN and Disney. And actually, he was wrong. I always had to represent them. You know, if I got hit by a bus, it would be ESPN's Jamel Hill gets hit by a bus, right? So you you immediately surrender a part of your identity just by working for the mouse. Um, because that's that's what's required. I mean, it's, it, it's it, you know what you're signing up for. And so you are very aware at all times about what the brand is, what your role is. And, um, you know, for that matter, that you have, you know, there there are, there's a different level of scrutiny. And so when I was at ESPN, I had to get used to the fact that if I said something, it wasn't that, oh, unnamed columnist says this about the Baltimore Ravens. It's ESPN's Jamel Hill said this about the Baltimore Ravens. You become a part of the story. And what happens is it pushes you, and at least for me, into this awkward space of like a celebrity journalist. And that took a lot of adjusting for me, um, you know, to kind of get used to, because I wasn't used to that at all. I was used to just having a byline. And yeah, when I had a column, sure, my picture was in the paper, every column. But ESPN is a whole different level. Whether than, rather than having 50 readers react to you, you got 500,000. You know, you're getting, you know, 2,000 emails a day because of something you've written and something people are pissed off at. And so it was an adjustment period. And I had some growing pains with that early on. And um, you know, it just, I, luckily over time, I understood kind of how to deal with that element. Now, now I want to move forward because from what I know, and I can only speak from what I know, I want you to clarify. Part, part of the reason why you had to split ways was because of your views. Am I correct? Um, no, actually, uh, you know, just to give you the autopsy, the reason I chose to, I mean, I guess I would say that's not a complete no, but the reason mm -hmm. I chose to leave is one, I thought I'd already done everything. There was nothing new mm -hmm. I wanted to do. Nothing. They'd offered me a couple of things, um, but I just felt like I'd done those before. So it was like nothing mm -hmm. for me. And then I also had a desire to speak in a different way that wasn't conducive to being there. You know, and that, that's nobody's fault. But it's like, as I said, when you go to Disney, you work at ESPN, you know what you sign up for. There's a part of your identity that you have to surrender. And I was not at a point where I wanted to continue to do that. And I felt like it was the right time for me to leave, to start doing my own thing, um, for having a little bit more freedom in terms of what I said and who I said it about. And so, uh, especially at that moment that we were in history, I mean, this is 2018. Um, you know, we're two years into a shitty president. Um, there's a lot happening in sports where black athletes in particular are finding their voices. There were some criticisms I thought that needed to be lobbied against some of these systems that they're a part of. And that's harder to do when you're at ESPN and they're business partners with the NFL and the NBA and Major League Baseball with everything that you talk about. And while nobody ever told me, like, don't say this or don't say that, as they say, what's understood need not be said. And so you knew there was only so far you could go with these things. And considering, you know, where we were with Colin Kaepernick and all those other things, it's like, 
I want to go somewhere and either write or speak about this in a way that I'm not tethered by, by the Disney brand. Okay. One of, one of my final questions is this, and then I want to talk about what you're doing now, because, you know, like you, you said in, a, in one of the articles I read, this is probably one of the best times for black people to tell black stories their way. And, and, and when, when I read that, I said, well, God, well, damn, girl, <laughs> you, you say in the real. Um, when Donald Trump tweeted about you, what was the first thing that you said or did or felt? And how did you find out about it? So for the people who don't know, when Donald Trump tweeted about you, number one, what did he say? Number <laughs> two, where did you receive that news? And number three, what did you immediately do? So I found out about it because some friends of mine, um, they, like I have a lot of friends who are news reporters, news anchors, political political journalists, and they started texting me at like seven in the morning because I think he fired off this tweet about me at like five or six because he's one of those early, early morning tweeters. And so my uh, my boy in Orlando, Stewart, who's a, a news anchor there, he was the first text that I read. He was like, dude, the president just tweeted about you. And I was like, what? And so I went to Twitter and I looked at at the tweet and I I just started laughing because I was just like, you have got to be fucking kidding me. Like there's a lot going on in this world right now. And it was something that I wasn't surprised by, but I feared would happen because at this point, um, the White House, as in the press secretary at the time, Sarah Huckabee Sanders had already called for my firing during a White House press briefing. And I had been suspended. And so then it's like the president happily dancing on my grave. And so it was just kind of like, you know, I wondered if this were going to, if this was going to be kind of like the nail in my coffin, you know, because um, I know that, you know, ESPN's mentality when these kind of controversies happen, not that there's been a controversy quite like mine, but just any controversy, they want the story to go away. They're just like, please go away so that we can get back to the business of being ESPN and just worrying about sports. And right. so because of that escalation, I just wondered if it put me in a worse you know, kind of position. But my immediate thought was laughter because I just couldn't believe that the president of the United States didn't have shit else better to do but to tweet about the opinions of a sports center anchor. And um, on top of that, I also laughed because I was pleasantly impressed that he spelled my name right. Because mine's easy to fuck up. Okay, so. right. His, 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 his black spelling was, it was pretty good. Yeah, I, which is only convinces me that like maybe somebody else wrote that tweet because given that he's not real good at grammar, I'm I'm way too, it's just way too many, uh, a way too big of an opportunity for him to like totally misspell my name. So yeah, it was that. And then, you know, of course it was, you know, naturally it was just like waves and waves of comments on social media. I couldn't even open the app. Um, I got like, wait, wait, I got, whoa, 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 whoa. You couldn't open the app? No, it was it was too much. It's too much response. Like I couldn't open my own account at all. And but the same thing happened after the White House, uh, you know, had their comments and during the press briefing. I like I couldn't even open the Twitter app because it was just too many people commenting, mentioning me. Like it just was like, nah, we just we gonna take a break, sis. So. I uh, could do that. I mean, by the time I even like, I mean, I found out at like seven, eight in the morning, like really early and, you know, easily within an hour, I had like damn near 300 text messages. Like there was just, I mean, 
you know, for people trying to check in on me, make sure I was all right. People like, did you see? Like, yes, I saw, you know, that sort of thing. And so it was um, something that brought an instant tornado to my life. Were you ever nervous? Like, were you ever like, shit, I better make sure my taxes in order. What, hold on, what did I do? To, is there, did somebody leave a line of coke in my bathroom? I mean, were you, were you, were you ever noted, nervous? Because I would think with the highest person in the land coming for you, and especially a guy that's like, I'm going to destroy my enemies, it would make me a little nervous. And I always want to know in my mind, sitting there watching it in real time, how you, how you were. So I wasn't nervous from that standpoint. Taxes was good. You know, I wasn't nervous from that. But I was nervous about my physical safety because as anybody who has been attacked by President Trump knows is that there are detractors and haters. And then there's the type of people that he inspires. A lot of white supremacists consider him their leader. A lot of racists, a lot of white nationalists. And so the amount of death threats that I started to get, um, you know, I had to disable my ESPN voicemail the last 16 months or so I was there. Like, I just I just didn't have ESPN voicemail because I was getting so many death threats um, on my phone. And, you know, in addition to death threats through the mail and just all kind of stuff. And so he just inspires a different level of hatred. And so for the mm -hmm. first time, I mean, it wasn't the first time I'd ever been called racial slurs or anything like that. But for the first time, I actually was a little concerned about, you know, my physical safety. You know, I was like, is somebody going to try to try me if I'm out in public? Like, what am I exactly dealing with here? They know what I look like. I don't know what they look like. So you would really feel a little bit at a disadvantage. I mean, that's part of the reason why while I was suspended, I spent a week uh, with my boyfriend, who's now my husband. I spent a week at his place because um, he was living in another state. And then I spent another week in Los Angeles. Like, I got out of the Bristol area. You, 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 got the hell, yeah, you got the hell out of there. Two questions. Number one, has it subsided? Has, has, has that level of hate subsided? And number two, was there anybody at ESPN that actually stood up and supported you? It was a lot of people at ESPN that supported me. Um, you know, Carrie, Mike, Michael Leaves, Ale. I mean, like people that I didn't expect. It's like somebody asked me recently, like, who's the ESPN person you heard from that you didn't expect to? And it was um, actually it was two. Bill Polian was one and Sal Palantonio was another one. Like, mm. I was, and I don't I mean, I have a passing relationship with Sal, passing relationship with Bill Polian didn't even expect that but they were very supportive kenny main i mean that's my dude you know he was super supportive so it was like a lot of people i mean i realized that there were definitely others who disagreed with what i said or for that matter didn't like that i was bringing negative attention to the company or third <laughs> didn't like that you know when they would do things in the media or whatever that people were and that was a that was probably an irritation but um, yeah, so I had actually uh, a lot of support. Now, in terms of has the hatred sus uh, subsided? Yes and no. The volume slightly changed. It's not like, it's hard for it to be what it was then. I mean, you know, there were people protesting outside of ESPN at one point, protesting both for, uh, against me and on my behalf, right? And so <laughs> um, that part of it has subsided but the level of hatred is still real. You know, as I, I recently talked about this 
on my show with Carrie on Vice won't stick to sports is that there's Which this. Is we're about to get to that. We'll talk to about it. Yeah, we were. You know, there's this there's this mentality or sentiment that we should be trying to make nice with Trump supporters, and while they aren't all violent, they aren't all racist. Um, though the fact that they're comfortable with a degree of racism makes me question even that. But for for sake of this comment, is I'm not turning the other cheek because you know I just I got a death threat um, you know a few weeks ago that the FBI uh, they contacted you know my team and let them know because my old address in Hartford somebody had sent some powder there trying to make me think it was anthrax. I don't live there anymore thankfully obviously. And so I've had to deal with that constantly, death threats constantly, you know, being called all kind of niggers and cunts and all that constantly. And so I I I'm, I'm not here for the you know for that whole unity shit. Like yeah, we have a lot that we need to um, do in this country to to come to some level of common ground. But we have seen from that group in particular a level of hatred, nastiness, disrespect. And nah, I'm not going to let that. I'm not forgetting that shit. Sorry. So <laughs> it, it, it is what it is. And so, yeah, I mean, it, what having to deal with that in my life is something that I can't really overcome. And yes, it's still very prevalent. Still a lot of his supporters come after me all the time, come after my family. Like they just, you know, it's just something I unfortunately have to deal with. And you deal with it. I think your attitude is like a text that I got about six weeks ago from an ex-girlfriend. It, it, it said, it was three lines. Fuck you, fuck you with a period, and then fuck you with three exclamations. Gee whiz. Well, that, I don't even want to know <laughs> what that relationship went. What might have gone wrong? No, no, no. It would, it would, okay, just get off the second. Go to the left for a second. Amanda Seals, I had Amanda Seals on the show, and we were talking about um, relationships, and she said that I, I was emotionally unavailable, and at my age, being emotionally unavailable made me, uh, uh, for my age, a fuck boy. Then all of these women heard it. And, you know, Amanda Seals says all those woke women that follow her. So one uh -oh. lady texts another, oh, your, your ex-boyfriend is getting fucking killed over here by, by Amanda Seals. And then I just got this text and the text said, I heard what she said. Fuck you. Fuck you, period. Fuck you, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. And I, I just walked it off. I went and took an excedrin. I walked around the block. That's it. Okay. Um, well, that's one way to handle it. Uh, I, <laughs> I'll say, I know Amanda personally, and she will. Ne she never. She uh, she got she got the high heat always coming. <laughs> but I didn't, but listen, listen. I'm gonna say that because I want to talk to you about bikes and, and about the unbothered and the new and the new money and all the stuff you're doing. I thought that Amanda was going to take it easy on me. I didn't think I was going to become the story. That we were talking, the subject was fuck boys. And I said, wait up, hold on. How the fuck am I thinking? What happened? What happened? And then the next thing you know, listen. Six minutes, six minutes in, I was fighting for my life. It was, 
You was like, I gotta get, I gotta, I, I'm on the ropes. <laughs> so, so about 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 four minutes in, she said, "Well, are you a, you know, what kind of guy you're surprised?" And then, bam, was the first person with a horn. You know, you know, you, you know, you get punched with a horn. You shake that off. And then, and then at about six minutes, the ref was coming to me, dusting off my gloves, saying, "Are you all right? How many how many numbers? No, three. I was five. And then that woman, that woman dog walked me up and down Instagram Boulevard, dancing, you dancing, you dancing. The women were all cheering on. I don't even remember what happened. I just kept... You just, you just blacked out after that. You're like, I don't know. You know how Rocky, you know how Apollo Creed was hanging on the rope like this, like. <laughs> oh man, well, that man, we all, we all gotta learn. <laughs> we all, but, but, but don't. <laughs> Don't put, when she punched me the first, I said, oh shit, with a horse. You know, you gotta shake it off, like with a horse, shake that off. All right, I'm alive, I'm alive, I'm good, but it was too much for me. But anyway, anyway, moving on. Tell us about the show on Vice and of course so, the podcast. Okay, so show on Vice is called Won't Stick to Sports and uh, which is, you know, we when we do talk about sports, we talk about it from a big picture societal standpoint. So, um, you know, like our first guest that we had was LeBron and he came on there to talk about voter suppression. And um, we had a great conversation with him about, you know, that. And so we, we talk about a lot of different stuff. It's me and Carrie Champion, who also formerly was at ESPN, a former sports center anchor. And, you know, we keep it, you know, we keep it real. And it's a great alignment for us because Vice is an edgier network. Um, we can get away with uh, dropping some cuss words and, and having the kind of conversations that I think um you know people want to have and they know we're genuine and authentic so enjoying that and then the podcast which is called Jamel Hill is Unbothered it's on Spotify um you know that is me sitting down with people who I feel like are compelling have something to say doesn't have to be what I would say or what I would agree with but I enjoy hearing people's journeys and I think other people do too. So like I just recently, the podcast that's up this week, uh, me and Taraji Henson had a great conversation Mm -hmm. um, about Hollywood and pay equity and what it's like when you're black fighting for what you're worth. Um, Also about mental health. She's had a new show on Facebook watch that is, is, is tremendous. And so for somebody who has been so beloved in our community for a long time, and is so dynamite at what she does, it was, um, really eye-opening to hear about some of the fights and battles that she still has to face. And plus, she's just so candid and honest. Um, so that was great. Um, you know, podcast next week is me and Method Man chopping it up about everything from comic books mm-hmm. to music and everything. And so, yeah, it's just a, it's a really good space for me. So, because um, I like sitting down talking to people and, and just hearing about him. That, that's, the, that's a big part about being a journalist is like your ability to listen. And... Um, <laughs> Yeah, so that's, you know, that's uh, where I get to exercise that muscle and just, you know, uh, get people to tell me things that maybe on other platforms they wouldn't feel comfortable um, mm-hmm. telling me. Like, I, you get on this platform, you know, so it's the same thing. So, yeah, I'm I'm really enjoying it. And just overall at this stage in my career, I'm enjoying the fact that there's nothing I do now that I have to do. Everybody that I work with, these are people I want to work with and be in partnership with and build with. And, um, you know, that's a really gratifying thing to make the transition from being somebody who's a part of somebody else's machine to developing, you know, my own machine. Now I'm a business owner. Now I employ people. And so it's been really exciting for me um, at this point in my career. Final question. 
what on unbothered what is the most riveting interview you've ever had and what's the most explosive thing that somebody's ever said to you oh man that's a long list i tell you what the one of the most riveting interviews i had was with cat williams um cat williams is so thoughtful cat williams is brilliant and certainly one of the things he told me that I was very shocked by is that he had $55 million embezzled from him. And he was very honest about what happened. And it was it was something, right? And so that was a great interview. Um, you know, I, I, me and Gabrielle Union, we're friends. We had a, a great interview and just talking about her journey and um, just all the, the backlash her family has faced, particularly once they decided to support their transgender daughter. Um, Ellen Pompeo, as many people know, is Meredith Grey on Grey's Anatomy. Like, Ellen is my dog, man. She, she kept it so real. Um, just about, um, you know, uh, not just white privilege, but just about, like, what she can do as an ally to further uplift and, and help and amplify Black voices, particularly Black women and women of color. So, I, I mean, it's, I've learned a lot of things. One of the funniest interviews I've ever done was probably Freddie Gibbs, you know, Freddie Gibbs <laughs> talking to him. That dude is hysterical. Freddie Gibbs. Was that man in there talking about Jeezy? Was that man in there talking about Jeezy? No, this is, um, he was not. He did, however, talk about opening a crack store, which was totally hilarious. You know, got, I had, yeah, we had, had an interview with Rick, Rick Ross when he talked about selling horse sperm. I mean, this is, well, you know, like people, people cut loose. Fonte, my man from uh, Little Brother and Foreign Exchange, like that dude is so fucking funny. So I, I have been really blessed. We've had over a hundred guests, um, most of them people you know, and you know a lot of things about people that we kind of grew up with and and loved in our community, and we wondered like what was their journey, what happened, you know, um, you know Erica Alexander who uh, played Max. Maxine Shaw on living uh, on living single, like her journey is crazy, and so learning things about her and uh, yeah, I mean she's she's phenomenal. So I've enjoyed that part of it is getting to learn about other people's journeys. It's been really exceptional. I'm bothered a must a must listen on Spotify. I'm sure on Apple and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I want to thank you for coming through. And again, like I said, I mean it. I dead ass mean it. For somebody to to have it all, and, and, and I know what that's like because I've been in, in that world and in those rooms, and I know that sometimes when people say get down or lay down, you get down before you lay down. And, yeah. and the way that you maneuvered and, and, and the way that you handled yourself to me was, in, in terms of black people, exemplary. And I'm not trying to get into my T.I. Uh, expeditiously, uh, <laughs> uh, nonsense, but I'm just telling you that I really appreciate it. I love what you did, and that's why I support you, and that's why I went and I said, let me go see if I can get Jabel Hill. And I took a damn shot in the dark, like, pow, and, and, and I hit you. Yeah, I mean, even though I'm not a, a, not a, a native New Yorker or, um, you know, somebody who... Um, was super familiar at first with the, with the New York radio scene. It's like your name was always one that I knew about. So when you hit me up and was like, I'd love to have you on, I'm like, Pat Man Scoop, hell yeah, I'm in, right? So I'm glad we were able to get this done. I've appreciated what you've meant to culture and uh, how you have also elevated and amplified um, Black culture, Black voices, Black people in general. So it's it's a mutual admiration society here for sure. Thank you. I, I'm black. I'm, I'm not. I'm not Akon black, but 
I'm black. You in there. We know. <laughs> All right. I'll All see right, you later. God bless. Make Noise with Fat Man Scoop is produced by myself alongside Raj Kachetcha and the team at creativecontentagency.com. Please support this podcast by leaving us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I love that. And by following this podcast on Spotify and sharing links to episodes you enjoy with your friends. Do it. You can also email the show via podcast at fatmanscoop.com. I answer that. Or you can DM me at Fat Man Scoop. Yes, I answer DMs.